Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is a passage that we did look at uh, during our Hebrews series a couple years ago. Uh, but we're revisiting it as it is relevant to our current series, In Pursuit of a Healthy Church. Um, so let's give our attentive listening to the reading of God's Word uh, from Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us into this place where we get to hear from you. Uh, it is a blessing, it is a rare blessing uh, to be able to commune with you, to draw close to you, to hear from you. Uh, what a uh, blessing and a privilege. God, give us uh, spiritual ears to hear and eyes to see, and let the words uh, you bring to us, uh, let it shape us and reshape us according to your will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've been on and off teaching Owen, our uh, nine-year-old, uh, a little basketball. Uh, I'm entering retirement myself um, and going into coaching more now. <laughs> uh, the first sort of milestone for him was dribbling the ball with both hands just 10 times in a row uh, and then moving on to 20 times in a row. And he's at a point where he can dribble probably up to 40, 50 times uh, without losing the ball. Just the basics. But the, the reason why he uh, struggles to get over that 40 to 50 dribble barrier isn't so much because of um, what he's doing with his hands or feet. It's what he's doing with his eyes. Uh, for some reason, by the time he gets to about the 40th dribble, he'll start looking at me. <laughs> Maybe he's wondering how much longer is this going to go on for, or uh, are you satisfied? You know? <laughs> um, are you, are you not entertained kind of thing? Um, and then he'll, he'll lose his grip on the ball or he'll drift off and kind of stare at like a blank spot on the wall and, and lose his grip on the ball. And so I would have to remind him, Owen, keep your eyes on the ball. Keep your eyes on the ball. Uh, I think there's a parallel there uh, to really all of our Christian life in general. Um, we tend to think being a Christian or being a faithful Christian has more to do with what we do with our hands and feet when it really has more to do with what we do with our eyes or spiritual eyes, it's what we're fixing our eyes on. What are we focusing on? Um, the Bible never really presents to us a sort of behavioral way of life, like what we're doing with our hands and feet as the main thing. That's not 
Christianity 101. That's not basic Christianity. It's, it's time and time again telling us at the center of the Christian life, if you are truly a believer, uh, you are set on the agenda of fixing your eyes on Jesus. The book of Hebrews contains quite a few warning passages because uh, during this time, there are many Jewish Christians who are falling away from the faith uh, and not returning again. So there are not one, not two, but six warning passages in the book of Hebrews, warning the Jewish Christians to not go back to the old covenant forms of worship, look to Christ, the true sacrifice, um, worship him as your true priest and temple and, and offering. Um, and so time and time again, he brings this reminder to the Hebrews, and uh, his central message in the book of Hebrews is, keep your eyes on Jesus and consider him. Consider Jesus. Uh, I want to break down the importance of that into um, three parts for us today. One, I want to look at the fullest meaning, the, the fullest meaning of considering Jesus with you, okay? And, and two, the, the worthy cost of following uh, Jesus, as in there is a cost, but it's worth it. Three, the practical power of considering Jesus, okay? These three. Uh, fullest meaning of considering Jesus, the worthy cost of considering Jesus, and the practical power of of considering Jesus, all right? So point number one, the fullest meaning. Uh, the Greek word for consider is katanoeo, katanoeo. It means to fix your eyes on something without being distracted, um, without looking away, fixing your eyes on something. That's katanoeo. It's, that's what considering literally means. And that has a a ton of implications, but I want to just highlight one thing for us today, and that is this. When it comes to the quality of your Christian life, your Christian faith, your Christian identity, you are not to first and foremost consider you. You are to consider Jesus. Long before you consider you, you are to consider him. And this is really vital for us because if we don't do that, we will drop the ball. We will drift away if we are not fixing our eyes on Jesus, if we are not considering him. Verse 2 even says this, that Jesus was the one faithful to God. Right, hear that? Jesus was the one who was faithful. Consider that. Before you consider uh, how faithful am I to God, consider how faithful is Jesus to God? How faithful was he in accomplishing God's mission to save a sinner like me and bring me into his eternal kingdom, redefine my identity as a child of God? How faithful was he in that? Our, our tendency, sort of our default rhythm, is to do the opposite of that. To, we would fix our eyes on what we're doing, how well we're doing it, and how other people perceive us in doing those things long before we fix our eyes on how's Jesus doing? How is Jesus doing today in being my Savior, being my Shepherd, being my Lord? And also, although it's not inherently wrong to gravitate towards role models, spiritual role models in our lives, uh, women and men who are 
mature and we admire and we really look up to, we do have a tendency to look too much to them for our source of encouragement, don't we? Um, and that, what that does is it runs a risk of looking more to what is Christian and neglect the first syllable of that word. Not to mention the risk of being completely disillusioned and, and, and derailed when our, our heroes fail us. And, and that can be devastating. Because when we turn people into a source of our hope, they, they also become a source of our despair. But what does, it mean to cons- what does it mean to consider Jesus? It means we are preoccupied with him. Uh, it means we take our thoughts captive and, and we channel them towards Jesus, much more so than we, we channel our thoughts to how am I doing and how are other people doing, looking to Jesus, reflecting upon him, considering him, remembering him. Uh, Here's perhaps an example of what that could look like in your day-to-day. There was an article in uh, Psychological t- uh, Psychology Today, published a few years ago. It's titled, Are You a Daydreamer? Are You a Daydreamer? And in that article, uh, a couple of psychologists explain that daydreaming, turns out, is not just this you know, pejorative way of calling someone um, unproductive or unattentive, you know, having these wasteful fantasies in the middle of a lecture or a sermon. <laughs> uh, daydreaming is not just like a trip down uh, memory lane. Here's what they found. Quote, daydreaming actually can be used to improve an individual's life in terms of fulfilling needs, hopes, and goals, as well as helping the individual gain a better insight with respect to oneself and behavior with others. A person can mentally rehearse how he will act in future situations. Thus daydreaming can also be viewed as a preparatory tool in how to handle both behaviorally and emotionally upcoming situations. This is to say, what you and I daydream about, what we spend our, our mental energy on most effortlessly, that's very much related to what you perceive as your life's greatest fulfillment hope, and goal. And it's therefore a real glimpse into who you are, how you perceive your life and even perceive yourself. It's an insight with respect to oneself. And, and it then leads you to prepare for your future actions, what, what your future actions ought to be as consistent with those ideals that you daydream about. To consider Jesus is very much like that. In the fullest sense, to consider Jesus is to daydream about him. To, to set Jesus and his saving work, all of his promises, his presence as your greatest source of fulfillment, hope, and goal. And therefore, you orient your future actions and behavior and emotions accordingly, according to those ideals set forth by Jesus whom you daydream about. All this is Kata noeo Jesus, considering Jesus. Um, now, if you are at this point going, I already know Jesus. I know the gospel. True and false. Uh, in a sense, you do know the gospel, 
But in a sense, you don't. Not fully. Not completely. Not perfectly. Not with all your intellect. Not with all your emotions. Not with all of your will. It's when we think we've figured the gospel out, that's when we're either plateauing or regressing. The gospel, when it's given, deposited into the flesh, it's meant to be constantly revived and revived again, to, to be stirred up again constantly. How? As we consider Jesus more and more. There's a song I've been um, just putting on repeat a lot lately. Uh, it's called Made for Jesus. It's by an artist named John Mark Pentana. It goes like this. Creation flowed from pure love. You were crafting. I was breathing. You were laughing. I was reaching out for you. I was made for heaven. I was made for Jesus. I was made to walk in the cool of the day with you. Cursed in the garden of paradise, you knew the pain from a lover's eyes. To get us back, you gave it all. Filled in the likeness of flesh on earth. You bore the cross that we deserved. You've gotten down on one knee. Spirits breathing, now I'm living. We've been married, now I'm seeing. I think I like this song a lot because whenever I listen to it, I get this feeling that I'm listening to someone who's just been daydreaming about Jesus a lot. And, and it, it makes me want to do the same. I want to daydream more about Jesus this way, more deeply, more personally, more creatively, more genuinely. Because after all, I am his bride. He deserves my attention. Some of you can get that out of you know, spiritual hymns and songs. Some of you can get that by just meditating deeply on, on, on books like Knowing God by J.I. Packer, uh, Seeing with New Eyes by David Pollison, uh, or When Striving Sees. Um, some of you get this more by just talking about God with a friend, and just talking about God and what you've been reflecting in his word with a family member. Some of you can get this simply by coming to worship on Sunday. Um, this is where you reconsider Jesus every week. Uh, some of you get it by per praying personally in secret, journaling your prayers, revisiting your prayers. And really the truth is we need all of these things. We need all these means of grace to help us keep our eyes on Jesus so that we would be less fixated on ourselves and more fixated on Christ. More intentional reflection on Christ and his gospel. That's the, that's the fullest sense of considering him. Okay. Oh, we know it already? Uh, true? False. Okay. All right, point number two. Uh, considering Jesus comes at a cost, but it is a worthy cost. Um, we have to one, uh, unpack one more thing in verse 1, where it says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. 
the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, what is this heavenly calling referring to? It's the calling to enter into the heavenly home, the, the heavenly land that God has promised all his people. It's the kingdom of God. And the word share in is referring to the concept of inheritance that the Israelites were very familiar with. Uh, they knew that as offspring of Abraham that um, God had promised that they would inherit the land that God had promised them. But notice something really interesting here. God doesn't say to them, right, um, you who share in the land of Canaan, or you who share in Israel, you who share in Jerusalem. It says you who share in a heavenly calling, heavenly calling, meaning what? It's, it's not a physical land, ultimately. It's a heavenly one. So even though God had you know, specific purposes in leading Israelites out of Egypt into the land of Canaan, a physical land, that was never meant to be their ultimate destination. That was the foretaste of it. It was a preview of their final home. The final home was always meant to be the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem that Jesus brings down to us, as it says in Revelation 21. That's the true heavenly home of God's people, all of God's people. Why is that important? Well, the author of Hebrews, he knows who he's talking to, right? He knows his audience and at what point in history his audience is in. The Jews at this time were, although they were offspring of Abraham, or ethnically, were living under Roman occupation. And their greatest agenda, therefore, right, their, their utmost priority in life would have been to reacquire their land, reestablish themselves as a nation. So he knows, the author knows, for the Hebrews, the most reassuring and empowering words would have been, just wait, God will send you another Moses who will deliver you from the hand of the Romans, just as he did. Uh, from the hand of the Egyptians. But if you look at our passage today, the author, knowing who his audience is and where they stand, not only avoids that agenda, he contradicts it. Verse 3, he says, There is someone counted worthy of even more glory than Moses, and that is Jesus. The apostle is making it so clear. Embracing Jesus truly and truly considering him comes at the cost of surrendering whatever your current agenda and priority is and embracing the new agenda, new priority that Jesus has set for you. As if to say, unless you're ready to surrender your previous hopes and dreams, that, and you've, you've really placed in Moses, therefore, uh, in order to lead you to your promise, that you are not ready to fully embrace Jesus as your truer and better Moses, who leads you to a truer and better promised land. Either Jesus is worthy of glory and you follow him, or you follow something else and Jesus is of no value to you at all. That's the point and that's the cost. Remember the analogy Jesus gave about how new wine should not go onto a new old wine skin and, and, and you can't patch an unshrunk cloth on an old garment? What he meant there was you can't take Jesus and just patch him on to your old way of life. That doesn't work. 
if you're going to invite Jesus into your life, he must consume your all. It's all or nothing. You can't just invite him into your life and expect for yourself, for your life to keep, keep holding on to all the worldly hopes and dreams and ambitions that you once had and for Jesus to help you succeed in those things. That's not how this works. Receiving Jesus comes at this cost of surrendering the old and becoming new, entirely new, radically new. It kind of reminds me of um, Marie Kondo. Remember Kam Marie, the, the Japanese house organizing lady on Netflix? She was huge for a little while. As soon as she enters um, people's homes, what begins to happen? People start throwing out a bunch of stuff. Right? Even things that they like, even things that they kind of have been treasuring for a very long time. She would really nudge them towards throwing them out. But at the end of the day, what's fascinating is everybody thanks her. Uh, everybody appreciates her. And even though their life is radically different now, they understand they're better off because of it. A similar question can be asked of, of us. Has Jesus entered your life? And, and if so, if he truly has, which of your pre-existing priorities, goals, or ambitions have you thrown out as a result of him? What have you thrown out? Uh, how has he changed your life in, in, in this most radical, reorienting, reorganizing way? Or how are you currently experiencing that? And at the end of the day, do you believe it's going to be worth it all for him to reorient your life, reorganize your life so radically? Is it, do you believe it's going to be you getting the better end of the deal? To truly consider Jesus means you, you embrace the cost, the cost of following Jesus. You throw out the old. You throw out the old. Or you don't have him at all. You have to go from, I, I want this land. I want my Moses in my life. I want what I want to, Jesus, show me what I should want. I want what you want. You are more to me than, than all of these things. Following you may cost me the world, but I believe it's worth it all in the end. That's considering truly considering Jesus. Acknowledging on the one hand the cost of following him and, and, and on the other hand the, the worth of following him. It's what the missionary uh, Jim Elliot meant when he famously wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's Jesus considered. His true value, his true worth, true glory, fully considered. Now here's something else we can consider too, and that is what's, what's sort of on the flip side of this. Um, Consider also the cost, the devastating cost of putting your hopes and dreams in an alternative gospel like, like the Hebrews did. Um, 
and even though our culture, we don't use terms like promised land or prophet or Moses, um, we culturally, society, we have our own version of this. And here's maybe one example of that. Um, the Atlantic had an article a few years ago titled, The False Promise of Meritocracy. The False Promise of Meritocracy. And what the article shows through actually various studies done is how the promise of meritocracy, which is ability plus effort always equals success, right? That's the promise of meritocracy. Ability plus effort always equals success is actually not true at all in reality. And MIT did a study that shows that even companies, especially companies that make the explicit claim and commitment that they will have a fair merit-based system showed vastly non-merit-based outcomes. Why? Um, well, for one, people's abilities and their efforts are not always evaluated fairly and accurately because people have inherent biases and preferences uh, that are that are there even as they seek to overcome their biases and preferences. People are people. Um, the, the, the second reason is the very high achieving, high performing people who give themselves over to this system of meritocracy, they cannot keep up with the system's demands. It's impossible to keep up with the constantly evolving cultural standard of success. And over time, people who remain in that culture, that system, what they realize over time is actually everyone is meritless. Everyone falls short of the glory of success. No one is successful, not even one. Everyone, in a sense, is an imposter. Everyone ultimately fails to meet the standard of success. What's the point? Uh, as it turns out, what the world may consider the promised land, success, is just Egypt all over again. It's going back to the old slave masters who leave us restless, make us strive ceaselessly for a little bit of their meat, a little bit of their jewelry. Shows us again, success can't be our promised land, meritocracy can't be our Moses. The challenge for us is to consider that as well, to, to consider the, the landscape you are currently in and understand you've been saved out of that. The gospel is not that you should succeed in the system with the help of Christ, but that Christ has delivered you from that system entirely. And you no, long, you no longer belong to that place. Even if you are to remain in Egypt, you're in it, but you're not of it. How does God do this for, for his people? Through Christ, through his gospel, and through considering him continually. This is essentially what the author of Hebrews intends with, with all these Old Testament references. If you don't keep your eyes on Jesus, you will inevitably make the same mistake that your ancestors made. You'll return to Egypt all over again. You become a slave all over again. You will give your life to whatever your surrounding culture is telling you to give your life to if you don't give your life to Christ. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Daily, hourly, listen to his words. Reflect upon his words. Hear him tell you, it's my ability and effort that will save you, not yours. It's my merit that covers you, not your own. Make me your promised land. Make me your success. Make me your better Moses. Consider me. That's what he's saying. 
And that comes at a cost of leaving the old behind. Surrendering the, the world and all the worldly pursuits and pleasures and living according to the words of Christ. That's the cost and worthwhile cost of considering Jesus. Lastly, uh, there's an incredibly practical power in considering Jesus this way as well. Verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Okay. What this is saying is, one, you are God's house, and two, Christ is faithful over that house, and maybe third, you therefore must hold on to Christ. Um, faithful, here again, Christ is faithful again, means he will never, ever stop working. For what? And it's really for who? The church, for you and me. He's building us up to be the house of God, the assembly of God, the family of God, the church of God. As Peter said, he's, he's building us like, like living stones forming God's spiritual house. Think about what that means for a moment. As we, the church, we fix our eyes on Jesus, Jesus faithfully builds us up to be something glorious and beautiful, a house worthy even for God himself to enter and live in. Meaning, he will use your life and and my life story as the raw material. He'll use it as his raw material in building his glorious house, and that's why the church exists. We're here to be, with all of our life stories, God's raw material that he would use to build his glorious house. This is why we're here, to be the church. And there's power in considering this. It means Jesus will not let anything in your life go to waste. He will turn everything in your life, all of your life stories, into living stones. He will use every aspect of your life, every piece, even broken pieces, every shrapnel, every gift, every scar, every goodness, every brokenness, build you up into his house. That is the power of considering Jesus. It's the power to to redeem every episode, incident, chapter, season of our lives, all for the glory of God. And that'll be true for all things in our past. Um, This kind of hope will bring healing. Whatever it is that we may have suffered in the past, to know that Jesus can pick up those broken pieces that we've left behind and make something beautiful, redemptive, hopeful out of it. There's, there's hope there, and that's power. And we can also, and we must, apply this to what we're experiencing presently as well. Consider his power there in the present. 
Think about what happens as you consider Jesus in your relational context. Uh, The people who bring joy into your life, people who bring generosity, bring loving kindness, people who bring wisdom into your life, they're not just people you're entitled to. They're they're Jesus' gifts to you. They're glimpses of Christ given to your life to bless you and edify and encourage you along the way. When you consider Jesus, we don't take any of these things, relationships, for granted. What about the difficult people that we encounter? Who are they in light of Jesus as you consider him? They are his call for you to imitate Christ for them. Imitate Christ by drawing near to them, by bearing patiently with them, by forgiving them, by gently confronting them, always welcoming them. Considering Jesus makes even the most difficult relationships in your life, not a rude interruption to your day, but a divine invitation to be more like Christ. That's powerful. Considering Jesus powerfully re-narrates our every relationship. Think about what happens as you consider Jesus in the situational context where you're experiencing a lot of blessing. And, and when you consider Jesus there, then those seasons are seasons of thanksgiving, not self-congratulations. Uh, seasons for generosity. God, Jesus is blessing me, giving me more so I would overflow to others. It, considering Jesus puts a healthy check during our season of abundance. And what about those seasons where we're suffering hardship, whether that's financial hardship or physical hardship or vocational hardship? Well, when you consider Jesus, that situation immediately becomes spiritual. Uh, the, The biblical word for it is trial. Through trials, you're being refined. You're being conformed to the image of Christ. Through it, you're being shown what your remaining weaknesses are, what your remaining worldly attachments are, where your battle ought to be currently, spiritually speaking. And through it, you learn the wisdom you didn't have before. You learn the secret to contentment all over again. When you consider Jesus, it re-narrates your situations as well. And notice what's happening in, in all these examples is, Considering Jesus gives you new ways of considering you. It it reconsiders you and your life and your identity and your existence. It empowers you that way to, to never live another mundane or hopeless moment in your life because it's all infused with the will of your Savior, with the nearness of God. As you praise Him, for every good you enjoy and lean on him and imitate him in every suffering that you experience. Every moment becomes divine. Every moment becomes spiritual. Every moment becomes redemptive. And it's important to remember that this power to to re-narrate redeem our lives, it's it's not in us. It's not in our self-will. We don't have that kind of strength. It's in our Redeemer, 
our faithful Savior who shapes us and reshapes us like, like potter does to clay. And as he refines us and remakes us, uh, he shows us that the, the, truly, the one thing that's truly worth treasuring is really him. He is our treasure in our jars of clay. And that's why we are here to be a church, to be his jars of clay, holding him as our greatest treasure. We are to be here a people who constantly consider and reconsider Jesus and through it become shaped and reshaped. Let that be your definition of a healthy church. Do I, am I encouraged to consider Jesus here? And therefore reconsider me? Uh, Am I here being challenged to throw out the old and embrace the new? And to count the cost and embrace the cost of following Jesus? And as I do that, do I experience how, how Jesus is redeeming my life story and my testimony and encouraging me more uh, to fix my eyes on how he is redeeming all of that, how he is revealing himself to be the all-sufficient savior and shepherd for me? And am I sharing that story here? Am I making that known? Let these be the markers of a healthy church, not, you know, are the Christians here really successful? Are the Christians here really attractive? Are the Christians here really healthy and wealthy? That tells you nothing about the health of a church. Do we consider Jesus? And does it cause us to reconsider ourselves? And is it shaping us and reshaping us into the image of Christ? That's a healthy church. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for this reminder, um, this lesson you taught us through uh, the Jewish Christians and, and their struggles. Lord, I pray that uh, we'd be able to see the, the reflections of our own struggles in that. I pray that, Lord, you open our spiritual eyes to see whether we are truly considering you whether we do see you as the most glorious, um, irreplaceable um, blessing in our lives, and encourage us to to turn away from uh, propping you up as uh, our means of succeeding in Egypt. Rather, Lord, uh, let your son do what he came to do to utterly make us new, radically change us from the inside and reorient, reorganize every piece of furniture in our lives. Soften our hearts, Lord, and may we surrender to him this way and and may none of us drift away from you. Build our church up this way, Lord. Help us to always consider Jesus uh, the way he calls us to and, and let that be our greatest treasure, our greatest joy. We pray all this in his name. Amen.